0: Hey, In Context friends, we need your help. Between now and March 30th, we have a survey that is out and we need you to complete it. We want your feedback. We want to know why you listen to Michael Easley in Context, what you want to hear more of, less of, and anything else you want to tell us to help guide us in the future of Michael Easley in Context. So right now, if you go to michaelincontext.com survey, you will be entered to win a package, including a $50 Amazon gift card, Ken Boa's handbook to prayer, and Michael's book on prayer interludes. Again, your feedback is so valuable to us, and we would love it if you took our survey from now until March 30th at michaelincontext.com survey. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books. All of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation. All 66 books. The Big Book. Cover to Cover. This is Michael Easley In context.
1: Welcome to the broadcast. It's a joy to have Dr. Jeff Robinson. Dr. Robinson is a pastor teacher at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in Louisville. You know, Jeff, I bet there are a couple of churches called Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in the country.
2: (laughs) I think you're right. In fact, I I probably I, I I won't tell you. Whether or not I uh, lifted that name from a friend's <laughs>
1: church, we will, we will let that. It's go. all good. It's Remain all a mystery. <laughs> you gotta have it. You gotta have a name, right? Uh, right. A native of Blairsville, Georgia. I was born in Atlanta. He also serves as an adjunct prof of church history at Southern Seminary. Prior to ministry, he spent twenty years as a newspaper journalist in Georgia, North Carolina, and the great state of Kentucky, writing about politics, Major League Baseball, and SEC football, the other religion of the South. Jeff and his wife, Lisa, have four children, and it's my, again, delight to have you on the broadcast. Thanks again, Jeff.
2: My pleasure to be here. Always great to talk about the scriptures.
1: So let's talk about this letter for freedom that Christ set us free, this letter that Paul wrote called Galatians. What I like to do, first of all, is just ask our experts, like you, give me your 25, 50 word kind of summary of the book, how you'd explain it to someone over a cup of coffee in a few words.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good place to start. I would summarize it this way. There's only one gospel, and that is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. only one true gospel. There are lots of there's lots of news out there, lots of messages that compete for supremacy as being gospel truth. There's only one gospel truth. And that is Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners, that he rose again on the third day, that he ascended into heaven, and one day will come back to judge the living and the dead. And we're justified sinners are made right with him by faith alone, by faith in that sacrifice, in Jesus Christ alone. That is how we're justified, we're made right with God, by faith and not by works.
1: When we start looking, because it is a fairly short letter, and we start looking at chapter one, I'm always struck with Paul's Christology that almost every letter he writes, the first, you know, in some cases, 18 verses, he mentions the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, God, God the Father, in him, pronounced. His Christology is not as long in Galatians, but he's still clear about, you know, this, this I'm an apostle, which, by the way, he's always defending his apostleship, right? Why is that?
2: Well, because they're, I do church history, and throughout the history of the church, there's always been this interplay this competition, if you will, between heresy and orthodoxy. Mm. And so he's always having to defend not only the message, but the messenger, the authority of the scriptures and the authoritative God called man mm-hmm. in the very same way. If you've been a pastor for a long time. You know this as well as I do. I mean, I think, you know, it's popular today to, to ask the question, Well, it says who? Who says we have to be saved by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone? And so, you know, you're always having to defend the authority of the Word of God, and and also the authoritative messenger, and of course that's an authority that is given by God to the God-called man. So I think he's just doing something that that has been uh, true doing early in the church uh, throughout the history of the church and will continue until Jesus comes back.
1: You think compared to the other 11 apostles and how they were called and the timing that they saw Christ, they were with him, they worked the miracles. Do you think he's on his heels in some respect because he was not called in the same way they were?
2: I think so. I, yeah. I think that that's a really good point. I don't know that I'd ever thought of it that way, but I think I think that's a, a really good point because he was he was one chosen out of time, mm-hmm. which means he didn't walk with the Lord directly as the other eleven men did he was of course boy, who, who among us wouldn't want to be called that way though
1: right, uh, Saul, right.
2: Saul why are you persecuting me and he appears to him uh, not many of us uh, none of us can say that
1: and let me show you how much you will suffer for my name's sake that's my favorite one oh boy I'll sign up for that <laughs> oh, yeah. class yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> I need to tell my you know, and I do tell my seminary students that the pastoral ministry is not what you think it's going to be nope,
1: so. nope. Uh, I think they're smarter than we were um, let's talk about verse six I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Heterodoxy we often talk about. Give us your sense. I know we can't know know, everything in our context and background, but the believers in Galatia heard this report. A church is being planted, we're concluding, and now they're abandoning this gospel. What's going on?
2: Well, it seems they're going after a shiny new thing. Of course, any evangelicalism, we can be guilty of the same thing, can't we? Uh, uh, the fashions and trends of the mm-hmm. day, but Paul's saying you—you quickly—you've you, not just—you've not walked with God for a number of years, and you're now—you're uh, now participating in some kind of deconversion story, as kind of as popular today. But you're quickly deserting Him because you in the grace of Christ and turning to this gospel. This kind of a blend, it seems, of works righteousness and and faith of circumcision plus faith in Jesus, which of course, you and I know, equals eternal punishment. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, I think they just bought into the latest thing, the latest teacher that's come in, and probably, you know, maybe a more persuasive and dynamic speaker than Paul is. I mean, we have lots of evidence in the Pauline writings that Paul was not a dynamic speaker, as it were, because he will always go back to it. Of course, this is true, always and ever, that uh, that the power of the gospel is in the gospel itself, not in the God called man who proclaims the
1: gospel.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think they I think that's what's happening here. They've they've fallen out they've gone after the new thing.
1: You mentioned in, in your opening comments about the gospel, one gospel, and it, just looking through my English text real quickly here, verse six, the gospel, verse seven, don't distort the gospel, verse eight, preach to you a gospel contrary, gospel, 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 all the way down to verse eleven. And then he switches a little bit of thought and he says, for verse twelve. I neither received it from man nor I was taught it but I received it literally but a revelation of Jesus Christ uh, again do we have we become sort of you know past passive or blase about the gospel we use the word so much and what does it mean here Paul is just almost sharpening an axe saying there's not a different gospel there's one gospel you've distorted it and let me tell you how I got it
2: yeah, I mean his. I mean Paul's authority is a delegated authority because his message is a delegated message, and you know this came from God and all. man. Of course, this is a culture that, that absolutely loved to hear something new. Mm-hmm. You know, We learn in Acts that there's there's always a new message, something more compelling. There's nothing new under the sun. We you know we think about technology today and how it always changing. I'm very aggravated. I'm always having to buy a new iPhone, it seems, but, but really, <laughs> we've always loved new things, haven't we? I think that's part of our fallen condition that, you know, the grass is always greener in the other guy's story or on the other side. And I think, you know, that that's what's going on here. But Paul's saying, no, this, this is a message from God. This is the authoritative mm. message delegated by God, given to us. And of course, his apostolic authority as a delegated authority. And, and so, yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, this is a great place to start. I mean, this very—I love his keen logic of all all of Paul's letters. Uh, to, but this is—I mean, he's, sticking, he's making a very tight, close argument here. And he starts, uh, you know, with uh, his epistemology, how do we know? We know, well, God is there, and he has spoken, and this is his message.
1: Mm-hmm. That
2: is the right place to start.
1: Is he overstating the—I uh, hate to say the word hyperbole, but in verse 9, if any man preaches the gospel contrary to what you received— he is to be accursed, uh, anathema. Anathema. What's he mean by that?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think he is um, speaking hyperbole at all. He's saying that if anyone preaches another gospel, and, and by the way, there's not another gospel, this almost parenthetical statement here, mm. let him be condemned to hell. That's what anathema literally means, to so anathematize someone, is con- to condemn them to hell, to undergo God's wrath forever and ever. That is what the one who would deviate from this message deserves. And so I, I, I don't think it's hyperbole at all because there's nothing more serious than, than one who would abandon this message and the, the outcome of the life of such a one, of eternity of such a one. And so I think he's right on here. I mean, he's, you know, this is very intense. And yeah. very serious.
1: Yeah. Life and eternal life, right? <laughs> life and death. Yes. Um, question. <clears throat> now, I'm a big proponent of predestination and the doctrine of election and chosen before the foundation of the world. I know a lot of our friends have a hard time with that. Paul doesn't speak a lot about that in Galatians, but he does. I would say, is, is he leading with it here in, in verses 13 and following? If we come all the way down to verse 15, when God, who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. So, I mean, and I look at Pauline literature as a whole. He's always leads with this. I mean, certainly in Ephesians, he leads with it and Thessalonians. Is he presuming that in this text or am I overreading it here, Doc?
2: No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, because again, we could we could get a systematic theology out of Romans and Galatians. I mean, he's kind of going through the you know the way we put together our systematic theology. You see it here. I mean, you have, you see the eternal decrees before he was born. God set him apart. So th- this is not an accident. This is not God's plan B. No, this he was set apart before he was born, called by God's grace, and of course. He's the Apostle of grace, the glory of God in, in Christ, as Tom Schneider calls him. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's right. Um, he, he's called by grace. And, and the fact that he was selected, set apart before the foundation of the world, before he was born, uh, is God's grace. And, uh, you know, there was a time in my life, 25 or so years ago, when I first encountered this notion that I was scandalized, absolutely scandalized by it sure. After God worked in my heart to give me light to see it. And, and, you know, I've ever since learned to rejoice in this truth Mm -hmm. that God came after me, that I, I love him because he first loved me. Mm -hmm. There's, there's so much comfort in that, isn't there?
1: Well, and I, I often encourage folks, you know, the doc, these doctrines have no application for the unbeliever. They only have application for the Christian because only once you've come to Christ, do you begin to understand, I didn't do this. I didn't conclude this. I didn't, study world religions and say, Hmm, I think Christianity is the one I want to follow. You know, I remember a, a new celebrity some years ago studied all the world religions and he decided on one. And I thought, well, that's pretty arrogant, <laughs> but you know, uh, but work. you know, the believer is called at some point in our life where there were children or teenagers or adults, that, you know, that, that, that knock on the door metaphorically and God gets our attention and we respond by faith. And then, we look back as he did here prior to that, when he's persecuting Christians, of course he had no intention of you know, being a Christian. And when God gets a hold of him, now he looks back on it and says, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, not his works, not his potential, but through his grace. That's, it is encouraging. Yeah. It
2: is no question. It's, it's like, um, I grew up in a more, I grew up a Southern Baptist and much more revivalistic tradition, Kind of church, and I'm I'm in a, a pastor or reformed church now. Um, but uh, you know, there's a, a line I loved in an old Southern gospel song we used to sing. It said, "Lord, the world didn't give it; the world can't take it away." Speaking mm. of salvation, and that's right, uh, and and that is the net effect of election and predestination. As God has done this, yes, and no one can snatch us out of His hands. So it has great practical value in every way.
1: So, Doctor Robinson, as, as we think about Galatians, and Paul has this interval. And now he records to these Galatian believers. Uh, he says, I went back to Jerusalem 14 years after the fact, and I made this report. And I had Barnabas with me and Titus with me. And so, my question to you is, you know, what do we take away from that experience? Because he saw all those people come into Christ out of Gentile, Goyim lifestyles, and the Jewish Christians who were in leadership in Acts are not. Settled? They're not happy. We might say about what's going on.
2: Well, I, I think that is what he's going to to articulate in the rest of the book here in Galatians, or at least uh, chapters uh, two, three, and four. That that the gospel has come to all people. And Of course, you know that that this this begins with the birth of the church, so to speak, in Acts back in Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost. That uh, yeah, yes, the leaders, the Jewish leaders, are not happy. There's jealousy going on there, but. But the, the gospel has come to all people, all, all to, to Jews and Gentiles, both. And, of course, Paul himself is you know, the so-called apostle to the Gentiles, Peter being the, the apostle uh, in a manner speaking to the, to the Jews. And so yeah, I, I think that's the takeaway. I mean, you see this shift where, uh, of course, Paul argues uh, in other places at uh, Philippians 3.3. 3, and, of course, he's going to speak with Israel, God, in chapter 6, but Philippians 3.3 three. 3 uh, and also at the end of Romans, that, you know, Jewishness has been redefined, uh, that, uh, that all, the Old Testament uh, the Old Testament pointed to the church. And, of course, uh, you know, that, that's some, been somewhat controversial, and the church probably is, still is today uh, in the debate through the years between dispensationalism and uh, covenant theology. And I think they've helped each other a lot, thankfully. But I think that's our takeaway from that. And Paul's going to model that. In the chapters to come and how he speaks of the gospel.
1: So if if I'm following your argument correctly and Paul's argument correctly, he leads in this book about shifting away from the true gospel. He, of course, leads with his credentials. Then he explains to them his own calling, how he was elect and so forth. Then he talks about the three years and the 14 years that sort of teed him up, if you will, if that's not unkind to say, to have this ministry. And now he comes up against the Jerusalem Council. The rest of Galatians is going to talk about the specificity and clarity of the gospel. It's going to talk about freedom and liberty which mm-hmm. to me is a strike. That's why the context, I think, is so important because what they were fighting in, in Acts is well, if it's not sacrificed to idols, if you don't know it, is it okay to eat? And, okay. you know, that whole debate begins among the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, so those who became Christians, which would be understandable. Well, goodness, yeah, can okay. we do those things? I mean, we, we were told not to do those. And, of course, Cornelius and Peter will have that experience about take, kill, and eat and so forth. But Paul is playing it out in writing and in a different way, and he's defending his apostleship. He's saying this is the core gospel message. By the way, there's a lot of freedom in this message.
2: Exactly.
1: And he tangles with an apostle named Peter over this issue, which I find is Remarkable in chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So stop right there. Apostles could be wrong. If an angel from
2: heaven or an apostle mm. brings to you another gospel, let him be anathema. I think that, I mean, you know, that sets it up so well in chapter 1. <laughs> yeah. This is beautiful yeah. because he's this apostle who was chosen by God, who walked with Jesus, I mean, rather, chosen by Jesus, walked with Jesus. In a way, as you pointed out earlier, you know, Paul didn't. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't matter because he's adding to the gospel. Uh, when, when he comes to the Jewish Christians who come from James, he says, well, you, you're, you're adding to the gospel. Mm-hmm. You, know, you had liberty uh, with the Gentiles, but you're, you're adding to the gospel here. And if you preach another gospel like this, let him be anathema. And he illustrates it here by going toe to toe with Peter. Which, well, I've always loved this, but yeah, it, unpack it. it's No, it's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus circumcision.
1: Well, in Paul's record there a little further on, he says, you were fearing the party of the circumcision, meaning he's afraid of the Jews. So Peter That's was right. afraid of what the Jews might say or call him into account, where Paul's saying, no, you stand on the gospel. You don't stand on what you know other Jews might say. And that gives us, I think, great insight on the humanity of these people even though they were chosen of Christ to be apostles, they were flesh and blood. They weren't Christ. And um, and so to me, it just, it it fills out the reality, the humanity, the vulnerability, all of that. Uh, These people were just men. You know, they weren't superhumans. They were apostles who struggled, who had longings. And I I find it strangely refreshing.
2: (laughs) Well, absolutely. Because I think... Uh, In the little book you were referencing earlier, The Crisis history that uh, I uh, was privileged to edit with Dr. Carson, I had uh, my friend Sinclair Ferguson write a chapter on legalism and antinomianism. Great. And and Because I've always thought it was interesting that Paul counters both of those errors in this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's because we, we tend... And I've written an article. I've written a couple of articles about this in different places. I like think at TGC, we tend, I think, at different times in our lives, toward those two errors. I mean, there's there's two ditches we need to stay out of. There's antinomianism against the law, though has nothing to say to the uh, to the life, the everyday Christian living, life of the Christian, or uh, or legalism that we're saved by works, by what we do. And so I think we're you know, we're always flirting with those two
1: mm-hmm.
2: errors. And so Paul's going to spend a lot of time, especially in the latter part of the book, because obviously there's freedom in Christ, but he's going to say, Don't use your freedom for sin. Right. Just right. a cover up for evil. And so uh, you know, you see that interplay all the way through here. And that that has been so helpful to me. I think I wrote a I wrote an article for Desiring God a couple of years ago about that, about how helpful. And so you had some personal mm-hmm. testimony in there about how helpful Galatians have been to me on. Uh, on that score, on uh, and again, that's why I asked Sinclair to to, to write that article, uh, sure. that uh, that appendix for us, because that uh, I flirt with both of those at various times because I am simultaneously a saint and a sinner, as Luther put mm-hmm. it. And of course, you can't think of Galatians without thinking of Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think because it was so so central to to his conversion and to the, the founding of Protestantism.
1: Mm. Two twenty is a verse many have. You know found uh discovered, I can still remember as a college student reading that in my in my little rent house and going that was the first time I understood uh what it meant to be indwelled by Christ, yet tempted by the flesh. I've been crucified with Christ. it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It was one of those verses that, you know, started illuminating and dancing off the page. I was like, this makes sense for the very first time. Any comment on that verse and some observations?
2: Yeah, I'm not a big proponent of life verse, uh, but I have lots of favorite verses. In fact, yeah. my congregation laughs all the time that I will say this may be the greatest verse in the whole Bible. And I said that <laughs> probably three or four hundred <laughs> times a of year. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think those of us who love the Bible, you know, and I'm sure you, you think this and you don't uh, express it, but I say that. But this this has been something of a life verse for me, if if you will, because it uh, early in my walk with God. I mean, I've been a Christian for forty-four years, actually. But when I started really uh, studying theology seriously and trying to draw close to the Lord and call, surrender calling to ministry uh, about twenty-four years ago, this verse meant, uh, was was gigantic, enormous on the landscape of my spiritual life mm-hmm. because I realized that. I mean, I, I had, I think, um, uh, growing up as a child, there was a whole there was a, a trend of, um, the preachers would preach this. they say, so you need to rededicate your life. Right. Uh, which meant that, you know, you, you sort of just, you didn't really repent until you came to church and you go to the front of the church, the altar, as we called it, and you'd rededicate your life. And I did that probably 447 times. And this verse really set me free from that because this does express the fact that we are both saints and sinners, in a sense, and I'm crucified to Christ. The old man died. But when I came to I came to the, in the crucifixion, in, in Christ's death, there was his death, there was my death. Uh, and it's no longer I who live that old I, but Christ lives in me. And I, yes, I still live in the flesh. I will live and move and have my being daily on this, on this earth, but I live by faith in the Son of God. And he loved me and gave himself for me. He was my substitute, gave himself for me. So that, that had a, brought a great deal of liberty mm-hmm. and settled, mm-hmm. of course, the Pilgrim's Progress settled my brains a good bit yeah. uh, many, many years ago. And I think that's why it does mean so much to so many people.
1: I often tie this to Romans 7 because I know there's you know, a number of opinions on that. I, I tend to hold the, the view that he's, he's expressing sin's real, and the only one that's going to deliver me from this is Christ. I can't do it in the flesh, and 6, 7, and 8 are wonderful bookends. But to me, this is sort of the addendum to that, saying, I live in the flesh by faith. And I think somehow we get sanctimonious and think, you know, I I have so many friends that um, they're quick to say, well, you can't be, Oh well, be specific. You can't be gay or have homosexual tendencies and be a Christian. And I say, well, let's let's unpack that just a little bit. If you're tempted by anything, money, sex, or power, how far is that temptation before you're going to measure it and say, you look twice at a pretty woman? Uh, do Do you covet? you know, uh, new cars and money. Uh, do you covet, you know, whatever, uh, money, sex, and power. Do you, do you wish you were in control? Do you not like, a, I mean, where do you begin to draw that line? And to me, this is such a refreshing verse to say, no, you are going to live in a flesh, but you do it by faith. And your identity is not tied to your money, sex, or power, or lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, bullshit. of power. Your, your life is tied to faith. I'm going to walk this fleshly life by faith faith, because I'm going to sin till I die, right?
2: That's right. I mean, you know, and James draws that trajectory, doesn't he, about mm-hmm. how we're tempted and we're drawn away. But then he draws a trajectory. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to, to give in to the temptation or a sin to, 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 I mean, it's 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 not a sin to look at a woman. It's a sin to look at a woman with lust in your heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, that I, I think this verse, yeah, I, I think is, a, in a sense, a good, a good application of that. <laughs>
1: Had to but also
2: o- overcoming the guilt, because I think when I was young, I had a lot of guilt. And I'm glad I was guilty over my sin, but the guilt overwhelmed me. Right. So I've, I had to have this sort of Super Bowl experience every time I went back to Jesus, you know, and instead of just daily walking with Christ and praying that he would put to death the deeds of the flesh, as, as Paul speaks of in Romans eight thirteen, that he would put sin to death all the time always be putting sin to death. I mean, on and on and on. That was part of the Christian life and that I would sin in spite of my desire not to sin. And so uh, you know this this verse again helped me that freedom that I'm in Christ. That I'm 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 in him that I'm united with him. And and I think that's one of the most the undertaught doctrines in the Christian evangelical church today is the union with Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ lives in me, that I'm 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 in, united with him and no one can take me out of that union. Yeah, and so uh, that's something I've tried to bring out in my teaching. We uh, I preached a couple of years ago through Ephesians, and we, you know, there was that little prepositional phrase "in Christ, in Christ, in Christ" all through there. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's it's writ large on two twenty here. And I think that's something when, that brings great comfort uh, when you're tempted and when you fail. Um, and so uh, I, uh, I've, I've tried to, uh, in the last few years, tried to teach on that doctrine
1: a good bit. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the guilt. I, I differentiate between good guilt and bad guilt. You know, there, there's good shame and bad shame. And the psychologists have vilified both of those to the point that it's never good. No, there's times it's good to feel guilty. You know, if yeah. guilt keeps me from sinning. Uh, you also mentioned the the first, you know, the, the, the lustful look. Uh, this is how perverted we are. My college roommate goes to a Billy Graham crusade. And he comes back and he said, Billy Graham said, that the second look is lust, and he, my roommate said, "So I'm learning to take a first long look." <laughs> I go, we're we're duped. We're damned. We can There's no. There's no solution. You know. We're laughing about it because yeah. it's so true. We're so clever, and we are. And we are. that's where it comes back to this life of faith in the flesh, because you're going to look twice. You're going to look at the wrong things. Right. You're going to covet. Right. You're going to have angry, you know, controlling thoughts about, you know, things that are obviously sinful. And this is where I always go back to the struggle. I can't, I don't know if you're a believer, you don't know, if I'm a believer, we, we hope there's a trajectory. We hope there's goodness. We hope there's changed attitudes. We hope there's, you know, good works that come out of our life, but only one truly knows if we have the right relationship with Christ and that's, you know, Christ in me, right? Christ in you. And I think it's so dangerous, but anyway, I'm off in the weeds. Let's go back to Galatians <laughs> Let's, yeah. l- let's look at chapter three. And as a whole, um, first of all, he's going to, oh, foolish Galatians, which, you know, who's bewitched you? Such great language. Um, mm-hmm. you, you're, you're, uh, you've lost it. You don't have knowledge. And you've been deceived before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing of faith. That goes back to your antinomianism versus legalism. You know, how did you get it? What's no. what's going on in the context, Doc, that he is addressing his argument this way here?
2: Well, they have seen Christ crucified in the preaching of the word. They've heard it so clearly and powerfully preached by this apostle. And now these thought teachers have come in with, in their estimation, at least, and some some estimate someone's estimation there, at the churches in Galatia, a better message, and so they've become bewitched. Now, I love how J. B. Phillips—you got to love the J. B. Phillips translation—he mm-hmm. says, "Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> who saw Jesus Christ crucified so plainly, who's been casting a spell over you?" Mm-hmm. And, and that has happened. They're just mesmerized by this false teaching, but they they've seen Christ crucified in the preaching of the word. I think this speaks highly of the centrality of preaching. Again, this is why this, in part, this letter meant so much to, to Luther. He speaks of this in his, his commentary on Galatians, which I commend to our listeners out there, how, you know, the Reformation was a recovery of the centrality of preaching. And so here they've seen Christ crucified and the preached Word through Him. I mean, they weren't they weren't there. They weren't you know, with Him, presumably, uh, obviously. But Now they've uh, they've received a new message, and he's asking, "So, how did you, how were you, how were you made right with God? Is Mm -hmm. it through the Holy Spirit and the Word, or is it through your faith in Christ, or is it by your
1: works?" Mm -hmm.
2: Of course, he's going to spend the next two chapters unpacking this and illustrating it so well.
1: Well, let's go to the Abrahamic Covenant because in three six he brings into conversation. I have somewhere written it down on a word document how many times Paul directly or indirectly brings in the Abrahamic covenant and Abraham's importance to this. Verse 6, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then we have the famous therefore transition explanation. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed. And you know I go back to Genesis 12 15 17 19 again and again and again in my teaching because I go you must understand this was never meant to be a Jewish gospel. This was a global message. And Abraham was that key individual you'll be a blessing to the world. So now fast forward we're in a group that doesn't know Jewish history I would believe, correct? It's it's like Acts fifteen, they don't know what they don't know about how Jewish do you have to become before you can be a Christian. And I'm 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 perhaps wrongly concluding that would be the case for many of the audience of the believers in Galatia. And so here he's saying, You got to go back to understand this covenant long before we were around that Abraham believed God, faith. It was reckoning him as right. It wasn't his works, it wasn't his righteousness. He believed him, and through that belief The world was blessed. So help us out again with the argument. Why does he go from, this is, to use your words, legalism or antinomianism, understanding the sanctification about living by faith in the flesh. You got the gospel, not by works, but by hearing and faith. And now he goes back to Abraham for his argument. Help me out.
2: Ironically, I just preached, uh, preaching through Hebrews right now in my church, and uh, verse by verse, and... We, uh, this, this past Sunday, we're in Hebrews 11, the Great Hall of Faith. and I preached mm-hmm. 8 through 10, where he draws on Abraham. And, of course, the first of a couple, three sermons to come on on Abraham. But, I mean, Abraham is the first very clear example, illustration of Scripture. We have a justification by faith. He was saved by his faith. And, of course, that led to works, but that's it's just not the works. It's not the going out, the leaving his, you know, leaving earth that saved him. It's, he was justified by faith. He believed God. It was counted him as righteousness. And so, again, he's arguing for justification by faith and the centrality of of sola fide, Uh, one of the, again, another one of the central core teachings, the the material principle of the Reformation, justification by faith alone. Mm -hmm. Um, They would look at Abraham as a paragon of faith, but he was saved by faith, not by works. And so, given the fact that he was one of the great heroes of the faith, I mean, has been throughout the history of church, that would be huge. And, of course, he's going to continue here. And he says, know that this uh, the, the, those who are the faith are sons of Abraham. So you're the sons of Abraham. Mm-hmm. He's looking at them as I did my congregation this Sunday and, and I told them. And he's telling this audience and telling us that when I look and see the church there, I see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And continuing Continuously throughout the history of the church, it is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. You are the fulfillment mm-hmm. of the promise. Made to Abraham. Of course, he's going to make this very tightly woven argument about Christ being a seed. Now he speaks of seeds over uh, just a little bit later here. But uh, you're, you're coming into what uh, I think the thesis of Galatians is probably back in chapter two, but he's fleshing it out here and yeah. Abraham's illustration like a good preacher.
1: And uh, we spent so much time on this, but I, I love this section in chapter three where he talks about the law Uh, Verse 17, what I'm saying is that the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. I remember talking to a Catholic uh, monsignor years ago, and we were debating about good works and grace. And I asked him, which came first, the promise or the law? And he looked at me like I was crazy and i said it's really important what's first was the promise first or the law first he, he never could see where i was going with the question and paul i mean you know from a catholic point of view he paul's revered right <laughs> well here here it says he says clearly i'm the law was later than the promise how many christians are 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 you know tied up with this doing and not doing thinking that somehow makes them better or assures their salvation when they have to understand, no, you're saved by a promise of God, not by your work. Your works are important, Ephesians 2 verse 10, but it's not what saves you.
2: That's right. And this is why I kept rededicating my life when I was young, because yeah. that was the work that I would add to the atonement. That kept, it, it kept me saved, right? I mean, well, it, wasn't, I knew it wasn't my thing, when, but it, I had to do that just to, keep, to let God know I was still with him. You know, well, I think when was, when you said that
1: earlier, it reminded me when I was a young believer trying to find a church home, I, I said, I can't be a Baptist. I got to walk the aisle every dang Sunday. Right. <laughs> well, I'm a Baptist, I, I must have backslidden. I, I got to recommit because every week I felt terrible. <laughs>
2: But it was it was a it was a kind of a hillbilly form of sacramentalism. I mean, really, more that's a,
1: a good way of thinking about it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was sacerdotal I mean to us. And so, but but again, this sets us free, does it? Because the promise came before the law. I mean, there's, there's a the logical priority, the historical priority in every way here. He's saying, No, it is faith that saves you. Mm. And of course, you know, James, which Luther called a right epistle, but I love the book of James and chapter two, very famous passage. Oh, we could have helped Luther out on
1: James. Come on. <laughs>
2: that, that's right. We're going to give him a pass on this, but he was yeah. wrong about that and some other things, but uh, but faith without works is, is dead. And so you're going to see Abraham respond to the word of God, his faith in the word of God, his trust in standing on the promises of God, and you're going to see him act uh, but still faith comes before the actions. And of course he Paul speaks of this in Romans, you know, he's, he uses Abraham as well. So this,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, this is, this is a central illustration to his entire, the entire book.
1: And it's so freeing back to the, we, I opened up with a verse we'll get to maybe, you know, for freedom of Christ that is free. I mean, this is the joy of understanding salvation. And I don't know about you, but boy, that was a tectonic change in my Christian life. When I realized following Christ by faith brings joy not burden not shame not guilt and in the legalistic way do and don't do you're shamed or you get proud and in this regard it's no i deserve hell i can't do anything good apart from his spirit what freedom to follow by faith and not have that guilt and shame and to know i'm forgiven it's not a license to sin it's it's liberty to do good
2: that's right The will has been set free. The will which once was in bondage to sin, free only to sin. (laughs) Yes, the will was free, but it was free to do acting according to its strongest impulse, which is, of course, sin, right? Mm, And so now we're set free. We're set free to do the works that has been promised that we would do, that we've been created for good works, Paul says in Ephesians. And so, yeah, there's liberty, and there's freedom from you know, we don't have to go door-to-door on Saturday morning selling our tracks or giving out the tracks or whatever it is some of those poor folks do and, and sort of count how many did we give out today, how many people do we give out today. well that be wait, terrible? Wait,
1: wait, wait. You could sell those tracks, Dern?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think they'd sell them now. I'm serious.
1: <laughs> I thought, God, I could have made money.
2: <laughs> really, I know. I know. There's probably some, some du- dueling affections there <laughs> or motives, but – but, uh, yeah, it, it liberates us from that because, again, I think there's that legalistic impulse in us that we we love to check boxes. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm an inveterate box checker. If I can check the box and mm-hmm. do uh, do my duty before God. I mean, you know, church can become this. I mean, you can, we went to church Sunday, God's probably happy with me. He's proud of me. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I've done my duty. It really sets us free, liberates us from that, to live yeah. godly lives, truly godly lives.
1: Now, as I read through, and I'm jumping ahead the end of chapter three into four. I'm I'm a word study crazy guy. I love words and I love studying the Greek and Hebrew and waste probably way too much time in sermon prep doing that. But I go through this, and and Jeff, I'm blown away. Descendants, heirs, heirs, slaves, children, his son, born under the law, redeemed, adoption, his spirit. Or, I mean. The language the man uses uh, is just astonishing. And, you know, I often uh, encourage our, our folks, and I'm sure you do yours as well, not to pray with meaningless repetition. That we can say the same thing over every meal, over every bedtime, over every sermon. And God is the most intelligent being in the universe, and we're having a conversation with Him. And the Psalms and uh, other prayers are certainly a good tutor to not be you know, repetitious and say the same thing, but I'm just struck by whether he had an amanuensis, whether he's writing this himself, dictating it, whatever the language, the capability this guy has theologically just puts me on my heels.
2: It is brilliant. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'll laugh. Uh, The whole time I've been a pastor, I was a journalist for years and I've been a writer my entire adult life and I love good writing and this is just brilliant. Exactly. There, as you said, there's so much in every word. You know, he's a child and I mean the S V here, the child is no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything. I mean, there's so much in those words of guardians and managers and boy well, that just I mean, you could spend, you know, half your life in those first couple of verses, what that means. You know, what, what the law is, what the law was intended to do. And, and what, uh, you know, how the law enslaved us, how he mm-hmm. compares it to the elementary principles of this world. I mean, uh, I think, you know, most commentators talk about the earth, wind and fire, the elements of this world, but the basics, the ABCs of the faith. You're not, you know, you're you're in, you were once enslaved to those things. Then it gets to verse four. And this is this is just beautifully written. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so, law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so there you get back to that, the notion, the doctrine you brought up earlier that's so offensive to the, the democratic impulse in us, uh, and, and that is the election or predestination, that the fullness of time had come. It hadn't come, it had, didn't come during the intertestamental period, 400 years of silence, but then God said, it's time, and the time had come. And it was mm-hmm. obviously this is something ordained and planned, and then God sent his son and he's adopted. Mm. He's not just saved us and bought us back. He's, by the way, the judge has said, you're not guilty and I'm taking you home with me. And you're going to have all my riches at all at your disposal. And there's just nothing more glorious than And this. the following. that
1: yeah. he might redeem those who are under the law. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I've used that probably in, in 10 Christmas sermons. I bet I've preached it four times because I, I think it's the best Christmas uh, verse that Paul gave us. We must move on in our book and for your time. Let, let's jump way ahead to um, the walking by the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh are evident, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Let's talk a little bit about this section beginning in chapter 5. Give me some high-level observations here.
2: Well, this is Paul's standard operating procedure. He gives the doctrine. He gives the, the, ortho, the orthodoxy. Uh, the the indicative, if you will, and then he gives the imperative, the orthopraxy. Paul, you know, Paul never ever leaves us with just doctrine, because well, you and I both know. If you just have doctrine, and you, you're doctrinaire, then you've not you've not yet preached the Christian faith, not fully and finally. I love what my friend Timothy George said about the Reformation. He said it was a movement of applied theology and lived Christianity, and that's what this is. This mm. is applied theology and lived Christianity, and so he comes to the Really, the apex of it here, that we've been set free, as you alluded to earlier, just beautifully set free, and and then gives the implications of if you accept circumcision, if you add one work to grace, then you've undermined the entire project. Christ will be of no advantage to you. He will have died for no purpose. You've scandalized the cross of Jesus Christ. You're severed. He said, You're cut off from salvation. And so, I mean, this. This is the implication. This is this is where it brings you. If you add one work, be it circumcision, be it the festivals, the ceremonies, be it you know church attendance, any other thing, then you've cut yourself off from Christ.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so that, that's where it's going here. Don't he said stand firm in the gospel. Don't don't fall back. Don't don't fall back. Don't submitting into the yoke of slavery because you were enslaved to the law. The law said do, and grace says done, and you were condemned by the law because the law. Uh, law is good if it's understand, understood lawfully, he tells Timothy. And I do believe there's an enduring place for the moral law of God, of course. But he's saying here, if that's a means of salvation, then you cut yourself off from Christ. Mm. He's summarizing and then moving to application here, which is what a good preacher does.
1: His, um, in chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, verse 18. Later on, he's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, live by the Spirit. Again, his writing is brilliant, but this tension between the Spirit versus the flesh, the flesh, and then the Spirit, is the way he lays out the argument. And in, in, in verse 16, it's the Spirit versus the flesh. In verses 18 through probably 21, it's the flesh. This is what the deeds of the flesh are. And then he moves in verse 22. This is what the Spirit does. This is who he is, love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. And then he sums it up if we, in verse uh, 25. If we live by the Spirit, we'll walk by the Spirit. That, again, that argument is so brilliant theologically. If you walk by the flesh, it looks like this. It's evident, You can see it. It's idolatry. It's sorcery. It's enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, etc. Live by the Spirit, completely different what what is it, what is it about the Christian we have such a hard time differentiating these two categories if you will because we know when we're angry or when we're jealous or when we we give our spouse the silent treatment or we you know maybe a parent of young children yells at their kids out of anger and frustration and we know the flesh is coming out when we look at this instruction so clearly I, I could be wrong, but I argue that the fruit of the Spirit, love, is the predominant word, and all those others are explanations of love. Love's joyful, love's peaceful, love's patient, love's kind, love's good, love, and so forth. And yet, yet we're so tied to the old ways of our flesh. We're not supposed to be, Doc.
2: No, but I think <laughs> I think he's telling us here that the Christian is to be a man of war. Because there's a war going on inside you. So walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify desires of the flesh for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. They're at war with the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other. So don't be surprised, Christian, when there's this war going on inside you. Again, it gets back to the simultaneously a saint and a sinner that you are. you are a man of war, a woman of war, a soldier of Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be, you know, it's Romans 7, and I agree with you. I, I, I do believe that actually that's, you know, speaking of Paul as a Christian, that in this war between the flesh and the Spirit that will go on until Jesus comes back. And, but, but if you walk by the Spirit, then you will, you know, this is how you win the war is you submit to the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit and crucify the flesh with its passions and desires because Jesus has crucified. You realize that your identity is in Christ, that he has unzipped you in the person of his Holy Spirit and climbed inside you and is now residing in you, and you belong to him, you have crucified those flesh, its passions, and desires. You've won the war. This This war within is just temporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to find on by walking with the Spirit because he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, mm-hmm. not conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And I think he's speaking specifically to the uh, to the, the sins that were going on in the were present in the church at Galatia there. And of course, the present in my church and your church, and you know, especially every evangelical church in, in, in the world and and, in our hearts too but we we want to walk in spirit keep in step with the spirit and then again what's the evidence of that well it's the fruit of the spirit it's the opposite of these things and it's it is love joy peace patience goodness kindness faithfulness gentleness self control it's all those things when those things are in you there on some level then then you are winning by god's grace the war within and that is the evidence that you have trusted in christ and not anything else and so uh yeah, I, I, this is very, very practical. And I think he's even speaking of the war within them right now. This is going on within the Galatians' hearts right now. Mm-hmm. They want to bring in—they want to bootleg in works along with grace and faith. And he's saying, no, there's there's a war, but keep in step with the Spirit, mm-hmm. and you'll see all of these other things come to bear, and you'll rest in Christ. I, because you'll uh, be keeping in step with the Spirit.
1: Not I, I, I brought it in pencil— metaphorically, uh, theoretically, because I don't really like the sentence, but it's as close as I can get to it. The spirit controlled life is a self-controlled life. And I don't want that to, I don't want to sound legalistic, but you know, spirit controlled life is, I have to, you know, through the spirit of self-control, I have to say, Michael, you can't do that. Michael, you can't take that first long look. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can't take that second look. Michael, you, you have to flee that temptation and that's when I allow the Holy Spirit to control me, not my flesh to control me. And that, you've you said it's a war. We're going to have it all life, right, Jeff? It's not going to go away.
2: That's exactly right. Uh, I mean, of course, a good illustration of what you're talking about here. The look is King David. I mean, mm. If he'd stopped at a look, we wouldn't have uh, this story of David and Bathsheba and David the murderer, David the— David the adulterer, David the man after God's own heart, you know, so, Mm -hmm. and that shouldn't encourage us to sin by any means, but, but uh, certainly uh, walking with the spirit uh, and you won't, uh, you know, you, you will stop with a look by God's grace, Mm -hmm. but it's all all by grace. And that's why I love the fact that this is a grace saturated book, like all of Paul's writings are.
1: Let's uh, land on verse 14 and then I'll ask you for sort of uh, any final comments you have. I I love this verse again, one that many of us would say is the most important verse in the Bible. Uh, But may it never be that I would boast, except, or the King's English, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Whoa. I mean, it's another one of those. That's five sermons right there, right? It
2: is. Yeah, that that is that is uh, that is a verse that finds its way into my prayers on a weekly basis, and if not a daily basis, because mm-hmm. that's that is our that is a Christian's biography. Now, isn't it? Because we we are he speaks going to going to speak of it, the new creation. But the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live by faith—I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and loved me and gave Himself up for me. That's it. Mm. I mean that—that is—that is everything. And that's—that they—and I love the way he summarizes in the next verse. Sir, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. In other words, that—that you want to be circumcised, that's fine. And so, as far as it goes, it doesn't do anything for you. Right. But the new creation—that's what saves you, and that's where you're headed. Yeah.
1: Final thoughts on Paul's letter to the Galatian believers.
2: Well, this this is the first book I ever preached through uh, as a young pastor many many years ago. I preached through it twice. I will preach through it in my church again at some point. Having in my the church where I've been pastor for six years, but uh, this should be regular reading for every Christian. I think uh, just to to remind us of who whose we are and who we are. Mm. That our most fundamental identity is is uh, that we are in Christ Jesus, and that is enough for us. That is what saves us, and that is what is sanctifying us. And so Galatians is very, very important book for the Christian life.
1: Dr. Jeff Robinson, uh, pastor at Christ Fellowship Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He earned his Ph.D. at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is an author of many books, including 15 Things Seminary Couldn't Teach Me, Christ Has Set Us Free, 12 Faithful Men, To the Ends of the Earth, Calvin's Mission, Vision, and Legacy, as well as the co-editor of the commentary on Galatians we were just talking about on a Crossway publication, Christ Has Set Us Free preaching and teaching on Galatians Crossway 2019 Jeff thanks for your time and for your labors and God bless you in your ministry in Louisville thank you for
2: having me on it's been a great privilege always great to 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 talk about the word of God Amen Did you know that
0: In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you if you are a regular listener would you consider giving a one time or perhaps monthly donation you can give at michaelincontext.com In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.